0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Football Social Daily. Spin like royalty here at KingCasino.com. Over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. Please play responsibly. BeGambleAware.org. Hello, I'm Jim
2: Salverson and this is the only daily Premier League podcast around. It is Football Social Daily. Every day, the latest news, views and opinions from the top flight of English football. You don't need to read the papers. You don't need to check social media, unless it's our social media. Just get the podcast in your ears every day by clicking subscribe now. Today on the show, we are talking transfers. We know the window is going to open. We know when that's going to happen now. So we're cranking up the rumour mill. We're going to be talking about Jaden Sancho's move to England and a second chance for Alexis Sanchez at a big club in the Premier League, potentially. We're also going to look back at last night's games in which Brighton secured their place in the Premier League for next season. And tonight, we've got two clubs fighting for their futures as Aston Villa take on Arsenal and Watford play Manchester City. Some very interesting pre-match comments from Pep Guardiola ahead of the latter which we'll get into very shortly as well. Alongside me, virtually if not physically, we've got Nile McCorn. Hello mate. Hey Jim, how's it going? Very good, thank you. And Marley Anderson, you okay Marley? Yeah, not bad, yeah. Very good. So last week I made a little appeal on the podcast, some reviews because we've not had any reviews in absolutely ages and the appeal paid off so I've got a couple to get in today before we get started properly some of the reviews weren't quite what I intended I'll be honest with you like this one that came in from MCFC Sam who said now the review headline kind of gives it away a little bit
1: be more knowledgeable or don't comment Is this going to be some Muppet talking about FFP when we're just a bunch of blokes that do a podcast? To be fair, Niall, you are a
2: fully paid journalist. (laughs)
1: I'm not an investigative journalist. I'm not an FFP expert, (laughs) nor is anyone
2: on this podcast, so I know where this is going. You're not an investigative journalist. Well, let's not give Sam the title of Muppet before we've heard what he's had to say, because he is having a go at Steve, to be fair, so it's kind of okay. He says...
3: (laughs) Oh, that's fair enough.
2: (laughs) Sorry, Sam. He says, the Liverpool fan... (laughs) (laughs) The Liverpool fans' analysis of the Cass case was predictably surface deep. Please educate yourself before spouting off on what you think or feel it means. Otherwise, you should just stick with your fellow pals on social media. There we go. Two star review that. It didn't even go for one star. So I appreciate the extra star because the review probably didn't deserve the extra one. And I'm sure Sam, the Manchester City fan, appreciated the City fans we've had on this week as well, talking about all the FFP stuff and Cass announcement on social media, which we're going to touch on a little bit shortly as well. Plenty of pro blue coverage on this podcast as well as anti blue coverage. Slightly more favourable five star review as well. I want to touch on which comes from Tom Met. In the US who says the football social daily crew make a great informative podcast keep me up to date on gossip and transfer news as a Brit living in the US it's heartwarming to hear all the English accents especially Marley Anderson as I used to live in Cumbria
1: oh did he
2: (laughs) can you say something typically Cumbrian
3: um, do you really want me to? It's such a rank accent that I haven't actually got much of a Cumbrian accent, but obviously if you're from Cumbria, you can kind of like, you you, you notice it a bit more. But one of the, uh, one of the main sort of slang words is the word Mara, which means mate. Um, so they, I they thought like, that was
1: just a really long courgette. <laughs> uh, no,
3: you, you don't get courgettes in Cumbria. Far too tropical. Um, what, what? That's context? a zucchini for Matt, by the way. Yeah, uh, what context can I use? It's just—it's just like uh, I'm going down the shop, mate. No, sorry, I said that wrong. I'm going down the shop, Mara. <laughs> and it's like that sounds horrible. Like it's a—it's a, it's a, it's a re- really strange accent. But you know, I'm not surprised it lives in America now because it's slightly nicer than the, than Cumbria, especially when I went back last week and got a stark reality of what it's actually like when I went down for a takeaway. So yeah, we'll leave that one there. There you
2: go, Tom. I hope that made you feel like you're at home again with Marley's special Cumbrian treat for you. Keep your reviews coming on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen for that matter. We love reading them, the good ones and the bad ones, and it really does help other football fans around the globe find this podcast. So give us a review now, you might get a shout out on the podcast. So let us kick off with the football news. I'm going to start with Watford versus Manchester City. We're going to do the previews before the reviews because in all honesty last night's games weren't the greatest. So I thought we'd look ahead to tonight's games instead. Now, the domestic season is over for Manchester City, pretty much. They're focusing on the Champions League. As for Watford, it's a slightly different scenario. They need a win to secure their future in the Premier League, which is particularly questionable after departing with Nigel Pearson just earlier this week. The most interesting part of this game, though, is potentially Pep Gradiola's little comments that he's made in the pre-match press conferences. And he's come out swinging since the CAS announcement, which exonerated Manchester City from any wrongdoing as far as FFP is concerned. He has come out and said that, I don't know why he's having a go at Arsenal particularly, but he's saying he respects Arsenal on the pitch, but he can't say the same about how the Gunners conduct themselves obviously this has nothing to do with the game against Watford but it's interesting that he is taking these pot shots at other teams in the Premier League now
1: yeah definitely and like you say he's come out swinging he's absolutely pulled no punches since that verdict was revealed that Manchester City's ban has been overturned and it's understandable because he's had a lot of pent-up frustration and a lot of pent-up energy that he's kind of wanted to release He, he got loads off his chest in that first press conference after the ruling was announced they were due to play Bournemouth And he wasn't asked a single question about the Bournemouth game in that press conference, not one. It was like an hour-long conference done via Zoom, as is the protocol now during this Project Restart period. And nobody asked him a question about the game. They just asked him totally about the FFP scenario and the case with UEFA. And that was sort of the initial moment when he started to really kind of make digs at, at some people that are still involved with the game, in the Premier League specifically, and some that aren't. Namely, Arsene Wenger. So he's had a little dig at Arsene Wenger in recent weeks. uh, And he's also had a bit of a swipe at Arsenal, as you say, before this game versus Watford. Now, the thing for me, what I think the problem is, is Pep was a bit off, for want of a better term, about the way that Arsenal came in and uh, grabbed Mikel Arteta, his assistant manager, his old pal Mikel. And I think he's still a little bit upset about the way that Arsenal went around it uh, in approaching Arteta. I don't think Arsenal did it in... um, a way which Pep Guardiola found respectful enough. Uh, I don't think that the the negotiations were done in a transparent enough way for Pep's liking. Uh, But the bottom line is that Guardiola's lost his right-hand man. He's gone to Arsenal and he's got one over on him in the FA Cup semi-final, which would have hurt for Pep Guardiola. Mm. He He wouldn't be sour grapes. I don't think he'd be bitter about the fact he lost to Arteta. But it certainly would hurt. So I do think really that's the key. And if you look at Manchester City's results since Mikel Arteta left his role as assistant manager at the Etihad on the 22nd of December. Um, they've lost seven games since the 22nd of December. And you've got to remember there's been a, a big break in um, in play the three months due to the, the COVID-19 pandemic. They've lost seven games. And it's fair to say that I'm not saying that Mikel Arteta's departure has massively impacted Manchester City. But it certainly probably did rock Pep a little bit when he left because of the circumstances and whatnot. So... If you think about before and after Mikel Arteta, things have been slightly more difficult for Manchester City. Their form's been patchy and I do think it's starting to grind on Pep. But the main thing for me, I think, is the fact that the way that Arsenal took Arteta from Manchester City is what's really getting on Pep's nerves. Combined with the fact that he's had so much to get off his chest because of this FFP case and he feels that now he can finally make some sort of comment on it. I mean, he's been
2: commenting on these whispering clubs as well. Teams in the Premier League that supposedly were in Cass's ear saying, look, don't suspend, don't delay any potential European ban for Manchester City. I mean, no surprises in guessing, or no prizes even, in guessing which six six clubs didn't want the delays. It's all the ones that were contending for Europe. Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal, Tottenham, Leicester, Wolves, Burnley, apparently all campaigning to Cass to get them to keep the ban in place for Manchester City but this whole thing is surely just going to be a distraction for Pep Guardiola and we've seen Manchester City's form drop off a little bit of late, not least in the FA Cup defeat to Arsenal, so if the manager's distracted Marley then that's going to transfer onto the pitch isn't it, and the players are going to lose focus as well
3: uh, Yeah I don't, I don't know if we can really put it I don't know what we can put it down to really Um at the end of the day, like you look at Man City's defeat, and they've still battered the oppo- the opposition in every game, and they've just not quite took the chances, and and the players haven't quite hit the heights that they usually have. But I mean, in terms of uh, of coincidence, uh, like it this being a coincidence, the Arsenal defeat, you know, uh, it has come at a, at a time where, like Man City, have finally got all this sort of stuff out in the open, and there's there's a little bit of unrest at the club in terms of Arteta's departure, and. And a new guy coming in, you know, the new assistant's only been there a few weeks, so there's probably a few different ideas uh, flying round, and maybe Pep approached the game slightly differently, maybe he, overth- he overthought it in terms of how um, how he he thought Arteta was going to set up, and-, and what have you, and tactics he was going to use, and something like that, he might be thinking you know, I've taught this guy all this, so maybe we'll, we'll play like this, because he won't be expecting it, and maybe it's one of them things, but I, mm. I don't really know how much impact that can have, and I don't think we ever, we ever will, really. Um, but it, it is interesting that it's come at it at, at a time where, you know, Man City are, are sort of in a little bit of a transition kind of thing with, you know, the, the summer coming up and a, a rebuild sort of needed, at least you know, two or three players needed, um, and the fact that it was against Arsenal with, with that sort of um, grudge to bear kind of thing. So, yeah, maybe, maybe it's uh, there was something in that.
2: As for the game itself, it's the type of game that normally you would think was going to be a bit of a one-sided affair that Manchester City would come out winning. The potential difference on this occasion could be the new manager bounce. Nigel Pearson has been sacked by Watford. He's been replaced by Hayden Mullins, who's the under-23s coach. He's the caretaker manager for the time being. So potentially you might not expect the same kind of new manager bounce that you'd normally get, Niall. And you'd think that Manchester City should find this game relatively straightforward and Watford will have to wait a little longer for Premier League survival.
1: Yeah, you'd think so. Considering the last two games between these two sides, the FA Cup final last season and the Premier League game back in September, the aggregate score over those two games is 14-0 to Manchester City. So Watford haven't even had Mm. as much as a sniff. So, you know, they're really going to need to, to turn in a serious result. And if you look back at some of the results that they've had over City, uh, over the years, well, they haven't beaten Manchester City for, let me scroll back here. I'm going back as deep as 1989 in Division 2. That's the last time Watford wow. beat Manchester City. I mean, you're looking at a string of green W's here when I'm looking at the historical fixture results. The last time they got a draw against Manchester City was April 2007. That was a 1 1 Premier League draw. And that was obviously before the big bucks came in from Sheikh Mansour from Abu Dhabi and pumped all this money into City. They've lost 6-0, they've lost 5-0 in recent seasons away from home. Manchester City away from home haven't exactly picked up the best results lately. As Marley said, they battered Southampton, but they still ended up losing the game. And who's to say that Watford can't pull off something like that? I mean, you're always wary against betting against the side that are kind of scrapping for their lives. There's been a new change in manager and stuff, and you just never know, really. Um, In the Premier League, especially, it's so unpredictable and so erratic. But, you know, if you were to hang 10 quid on this game you'd be silly not to put it on Manchester City. But then again, we said that about the FA Cup game against Arsenal at the weekend where Manchester City were 9-1 to to beat Arsenal by more than five goals. But yet, Arsenal were 9-1 to to win in any circumstance, which just goes to show the disparity that the bookies felt there was between the two teams. And Arsenal went on to win the game two goals to nil. So... I think the difference for this one is beware of the wounded animal and Pep Guardiola would not have been happy with his size display. As I mentioned before, getting knocked out by a Mikel Arteta side would have stung Man City. So they'll be coming back with a bit of a vengeance and I feel that Watford might, you know, feel the fury, feel the wrath of uh, of Manchester City in this situation. But yeah, they, they have to win, Jim. You're, you're absolutely spot on. They have to win because their next game um, after this, the final game of the season, is against Arsenal. So, I mean, if you're talking about giving yourselves all the hard work then you just know that you're going to have to get something if they can scrape a draw that's a big big boost in the fight for survival it really is losing 3-0 to West Ham was an absolute hammer blow for for Watford I mean that was that was the the game wasn't it on that Friday night that was teed up West Ham versus Watford biggest game of both clubs' seasons and West Ham cantered to victory Watford shot themselves in the foot and you know, they'll be hoping that that doesn't come back to bite them. But with Aston Villa also playing later on in the evening, they've got a chance to apply some real pressure to Villa if they do get an unlikely result against Manchester City. So the least that Watford can do is try and give themselves a chance um, and put some pressure on Aston Villa. I mean, that's all they can do. Uh, they've got a bit of a cushion to the bottom three with two games to go. I think it's three, four, three points at the moment. No one's probably backing them to beat Watford uh, to beat Man City or to beat Arsenal. So... Although Watford are probably going to get beaten tonight by Manchester City. I mean, I don't think it's an outrageous call to predict Man City to win this quite comfortably. You just don't know what might happen. And that's the beauty of the Premier League. And that's what makes it so exciting.
2: Troy Deeney has come out today, incidentally, and denied any kind of dressing room rift. So we're going to have to wait a little bit longer to find the full story there. For me, the danger is that Watford shut up shop and try and get a point out of this game. And we know that rarely works against Manchester City because it's so difficult to stop them scoring. And once they do score, you actually game plan out the window. But just to illustrate how tight it is at the bottom, Villa face Arsenal tonight in the other game, which we're going to talk about very shortly. If Villa can scrape a 1-0 win there, and Watford lose by three tonight, both not out of the question in terms of results, that puts it all square on the final day of the season in both goal difference and points in the table. So it is dead safe and Watford are by no means safe at the moment. Uh, as for squad and teams tonight, Dini and Messina are both being assessed. Dini's been crooked for a few weeks, been playing on with injections in his knee. Capu is an injury doubt as well. Jammat, Delafu, and success all out for Watford. As for Manchester City they're missing Sergio Aguero and Claudio Bravo still and who they actually play is anyone's guess because Pep continues to show a complete disregard for my fantasy football team by picking just random players every week. But it's expected that Fernandinho, Rodri And Foden, who all missed out on the FA Cup game, are expected to return today. The opponents in that FA Cup game were Arsenal, and they are in action tonight. They're away at Aston Villa. I've been quite impressed with Arsenal in these last few weeks, Marley. They played well against Spurs, but they lost. They beat Liverpool. They beat Manchester City in the FA Cup. I mean, I feel like a bit of deja vu here. But is Arteta starting to have a little bit of an influence on that Arsenal team or is it more a case of the likes of Liverpool just getting a little bit distracted by having won the league, City focusing on the Champions League or whatever so it's that they're not coming up against opposition in their prime?
3: Uh, It's definitely having an impact. Um, I think even with the the results, um, you know potentially having asterisks over them in, in terms of Liverpool maybe being on holiday a little bit but there was still enough riding on that game, and there was still um, a need to play well for Arsenal, and they did that. So, I, d- I definitely think he's starting to to really sort of put his stamp on that team with with the likes of you know Ozil's future. He's he's frozen Ozil out um, just as as Unai Emery did as well. He doesn't look like he's coming back. He's he's finding a role and a system that that works uh, a little bit better for what he's got. Um, in terms of the uh, the wing backs, you know the back three with Louise Mustafi and uh, usually Kalasinac, and then Kieran Tierney finding his finding his feet at left wing back, uh, he's looked really good. Um, also gets Aubameyang and Lacazette into the same team, which uh, which has uh, always been an issue for Arsenal. How do you get your two best goal scorers in in the same team? And he's done that uh, against against um man city man city in the fa cup and he didn't even start Obamian I don't think at uh, at liverpool and still managed to win so when you combine that with the likes of saka coming through and even granit Xhaka's playing like uh, you know the player arsenal thought he was going to be when they signed him from munchen gladbach a few years ago so he's starting to look like hmm. a player and before he just looked like a problem and somebody who didn't want to be at the club anymore so He's um he's, he's, he's starting to solve some of the problems that Arsenal have um and have had for for a little while. I think he needs a, a couple of transfer windows to get out the to get out the deadwood and and finish that Ozil situation, free up a few a few quid to go and uh, go buy a midfielder that he wants, for example, um and then get the Aubameyang contract situation sorted, and all of a sudden Arsenal are then look into the future and saying right, what can we do next season? Because this season, in terms of the league, they've not been good enough i think the 10th at the minute um and you know they they can't be 10th if you want to you know if you want to be this kind of club where arsenal want to be you can't be can't be that low in the premier league i mean they could be 8th tonight but um and they should be 8th they should beat villa let's be honest but you know even 8th their kind of situation now relies on winning the fa cup and qualifying for the europa league that way or going all the way and and winning um also, oh, I was going to say winning the winning the Europa League, but they got knocked out by Olympiacos under Emery, didn't they? So they need to um, they need to get something from this season, and they need that mm. these last two games to to set them forward in the uh, and put them on good a good footing ahead of the FA Cup final because that's a that's an absolutely huge game for them. And Chelsea shouldn't want it as much as Arsenal because you know Chelsea have got the Champions League already, and they'll be trying to win a trophy. Don't get me wrong, but Arsenal should. Uh, really target that game, and and it'll be perfect for Arteta to, get, you know, have six months in management and deliver his first trophy. Because then that really answers some of the questions about, you know, is he just a disciple of, of Pep Guardiola? Is he is he just a cast off and that kind of thing? So it'll really set some uh, some doubters, make them sit down, kind of thing.
2: Is it madness to start talking about Arsenal as potential top four for next season? Given what's happened this season, is that insane, Niall?
1: Um, well, no, if you take in comparison of this season, I wouldn't say it was insane. No, just because if you look at the likes of Leicester, who have been sort of involved in the top four for pretty much the whole season, I personally don't think that they'll cling on, but certainly... They've been in the race. No one can deny that. And then Wolverhampton Wanderers, they've had a massive resurgence. They've managed to balance Europa League, Premier League, and they went deep in the FA Cup as well. So, you know, they've been involved in the top four race before kind of a couple of weeks ago where they dropped out of it. Manchester United, no one was backing them for top four. And then the second half of the season, they've been like an absolute steam train. They look like they could pinch a top four spot. So I don't think it is insane to mention that Arsenal could be in the running for top four. But I do think the interesting thing with Mikel Arteta is what everyone said about him when he was the assistant of Manchester City, that he was the one that was really hands-on with the players. Pep Guardiola was the tactician, and although Pep is very close with his players, I think Mikel Arteta took it to that next level, particularly in terms of one-to-ones. I think I remember reading somewhere that Raheem Sterling the kind of the, the upturn in his form and his rejuvenation was partly down to Mikel Arteta and the yards they put in on the training ground together in one-to-one sessions and improving Raheem Sterling's, you know, general match play. And it seems to have paid off really well. So if, if Mikel Arteta can do that with some of the young Arsenal players that are looking so promising coming through, I mean, Bukayo Saka signing a new contract recently was a big one for Arsenal. They've seemed to have a lot of faith in Eddie Nketiah up front, who's back from suspension tonight against Villa. So he could, probably lead the line as well uh, as Yang. so you know they've got some really good young talented players and whether Arsenal can kind of get the most out of them and squeeze the most out of them without putting too much pressure on them um, remains to be seen but that's what's so exciting about the Premier League Jim is back in the day I'm talking 10-15 years ago maybe even a little bit longer when I was sort of growing up watching football the top four was the top four you can forget Man City you can forget Tottenham mm-hmm. those teams weren't even considered the top four was Manchester United, Arsenal, Chelsea and Liverpool. And for a long period, you could probably even discount Liverpool, really. It's only in recent seasons under Jurgen Klopp that Liverpool have come back into that top four race. Now you're looking at a top six, which could possibly even be a top eight, really, because you think of the way that Wolves and Leicester have performed, they'll be fancy in their chances to give it another go. So, you're talking top six now in 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 the investment in football the way that it's changed in the premier league has made for a more competitive champions league race and i doubt that any other league in the world or at least in europe is so excited about who gets in their top four like top four is an achievement whereas if you're in la liga finishing fourth Mm. doesn't really mean anything it's just like oh they've had a good season Whereas, you know, Arsenal for years would always kind of like pat themselves on the back for finishing fourth under Arsene Wenger. So I don't think it's insane to mention that Arsenal could be in the running for the top four. They are a club with Champions League ambitions. They need that. But I've said it on the podcast before. They need investment also. And hopefully Mikel Arteta, for the sake of the Arsenal fans, to stop them complaining on social media <laughs> all the time, is that the owners, the cronkies, see that Mikel Arteta has done a good job in beating Liverpool, beating Manchester City. If he wins in the FA Cup... That's unbelievable, really, in six Mm. months of a job, seven months of a job. So I think that, you know, maybe the Cronkies need to be putting their ear to the ground and thinking, well, you know, the fans like Arteta, he's pulling out some decent results. Let's back him and see how far Arsenal can go.
2: Arguably, this is a bigger game for Aston Villa tonight and it doesn't bode well. In fact, not even arguably, it is a bigger game for Aston Villa. The last six games against Arsenal in the Premier League, they've got an aggregate score of 19 goals for Arsenal and three for Aston Villa. So you kind of fear for them a little bit tonight. It could be the nail in the coffin that sends them down. Do you worry about Aston Villa, Marley, if they do go down? They invested a lot of money in the summer and we've seen big clubs do similar things where they invest big don't stay in the Premier League and then spend a good decade in the wilderness afterwards. Are we going to see that happening with Aston Villa?
3: Uh, well, we've seen that before with Aston Villa, haven't we? They've they've spent a, quite a few years down in the Championship struggling to get back to the Premier League. And when they finally do, you know, everyone said, um, you know, they they threw money at it. And a lot of people said, uh, are they doing a Fulham? Are they a Fulham? Because that's what Fulham did last year and they took they money at it and, and still went down. Um, and Villa fans were very... Uh, yeah. Very eager to tell you that no, no, we're not a Fulham. Don't be stupid. Stop being lazy. Stop being a Fulham. And they've been exactly a Fulham this year. That's exactly what they've done. They've threw money at it. They've. I. D- I don't know if they've signed one good player. Like what? Wh- which one of their signings has been? Has been very good. I'd say maybe Douglas Luiz has been quite good. Um, the other players, you know, their best players, Grealish, they already had. John McGinn, they already had. Mings, they already had. Um, Tom Heaton's probably in the best one and he unfortunately got injured which I think knackered their season big time um, because they brought in Pepe Reina not realising that Pepe Reina hasn't been good for about mm. five years they literally signed him on or oh, he used to be good for Liverpool um, and then they've realised that he's absolutely he's dog turd um, but I mean Villa Villa <laughs> look like they're going to go down I mean if they lose tonight it's all on that last game uh, the season with the West Ham They've got, you know, you'd expect them to lose tonight, but you'd also expect Watford to lose tonight. That leaves the gap at three points, and there is, um, you know, there's a, a chance for the goal difference to swing and whatever. And all of a sudden, the the win over, um, West Ham in the last day of the season could be enough if Watford lose again. So, it's I don't think it's massively. I don't think they're dead and buried if they don't win tonight because I don't expect um, I don't expect Watford to do anything at Man City, but, Villa they haven't approached this right for me. I don't think, uh, I don't think Dean Smith's the best manager in the world. Um, I think you probably could have got someone in better than him, but it's, it's a similar situation with, with Steve Bruce at Newcastle in, in terms of you've got a local guy there and it would be silly to not let him have a shot at the Premier League after getting you there in the first place. Like, the local guy is gonna be—he's gonna fight until the very last thing—and and Dean Smith's done that. To be fair to him, he's just his squad simply isn't good enough, and he's been unlucky with injuries. Everyone's gotten to the fact that if you stop Jack Grealish, you uh, you stop Aston Villa. Um, they've gotten to the fact that there isn't really a striker, so you can put a little bit more effort into to stopping Grealish's uh, creativity, um, and it's it's cost them because you know Trezeguet El Ghazi. They can't score goals, and that's where Villain, you know, they've got one hundred and eighty minutes left of the season, and they desperately need to score goals because you've got a very good team coming coming to play you tonight, and then you've got West Ham who should be mathematically safe by you know by that um, by the time that game comes around, and you've got to, you've got to find a way to beat them.
2: I was going to ask, and I'll answer this very quickly if you can, Niall. If you were going to give a school report style grade to Dean Smith of Aston Villa for the job he's done this season? Because we've talked a lot about their playing staff. We've not talked about him as a manager particularly. How has he done? And are there going to be any Premier League clubs that maybe who are looking to switch it up in the summer knocking down his door over the window and try and bring him in? Has he impressed that much?
1: You're a West Ham fan, Jim. Would you take Dean Smith at your football club in place of David Moyes? No, and that says... Quite a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It speaks volumes for me. He's a nice guy, and actually, I really like him. The way he conducts himself after games, and he's an Aston Villa fan. It's his dream job. Um, He left Brentford a couple of seasons ago, got them up, uh, got Aston Villa up. But I mean, Brentford, look, look what they've done since. They've gone from strength to strength in the Championship. They look like they could be on for an automatic promotion spot. Could see Brentford in the Premier League next season. As for Aston Villa. I know the Championship is a hard, hard league to get out of, so you don't turn your nose up at getting out of it. But, you know, a couple of playoff finals back-to-back, I think Villa fans probably would have been hoping that they could go up automatically. Uh, not Wasn't the case. Um, but when you get up to the Premier League after being in exile in the Championship, and Aston Villa, Aston Villa are a Premier League club, make no bones about that. You've got to stay there. You have to stay there. But Dean Smith, I think if you're talking of a school report, it's got to be... C minus D. I mean, to keep Villa up was the remit. And it doesn't look like they've done that. And Villa have just been not good enough. They've, as Marley said, they've relied on Jack Grealish, which everyone could see at Christmas or before Christmas that Jack Grealish was the key. So teams started doubling up and putting two men on him, three men on him, kicking him off the park, stopping him influencing the game. And it stopped Aston Villa picking up any sort of result and don't really know what to say about Dean Smith. I wouldn't be disappointed if he left the Premier League. For instance, if Chris Wilder left the Premier League, I would be upset because I think he's, he's he's a very good manager. But Dean Smith, is an okay manager, but I think that's about it. I I don't really know what to suggest. Um, We've seen him with a big budget and he got Villa up via the playoffs, but he's not really done anything in the Premier League. I don't know. I don't want to be too harsh on him because I do actually really like him as a man and a character. But for me, he's just another run-of-the-mill manager who... We might see back in the Premier League one day. If we don't, best of luck to you, mate.
2: I'd take a C-, minus. given some of my school reports. I don't think that's too bad. So I think Dean Smith could be happy with that one. Uh, that wraps up today's previews for tonight's games. You can hear full-time audio reports from all those games on your Amazon Alexa or your Google Home or via the Sports Social website which is sportshythingsocial.co.uk All the details there of how you can find us on your smart speaker or your voice assistant as well. Going to take a little break. We're going to come back shortly. We're going to look at last night's games which included a draw for Brighton, an important point that keeps them in the Premier League and we've got some really interesting transfer news coming up in a little bit as well.
0: This is Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Spin like royalty here at KingCasino.com. Over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. Please play responsibly. BeGambleAware.org. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode.
2: Welcome back to Football Social Daily. Let's take a look at last night's games now, which if I'm honest, weren't the most inspiring set of fixtures. We described them all, I think, last night as pretty much dead rubbers. The most tasty of the three was probably Brighton and Hove Albion versus Newcastle, mainly because it was an opportunity for Brighton to secure safety with a point which they duly got in a 0-0 draw against Newcastle. And you've got to say, Marley, even as a Newcastle fan, and it's a points dropped for you, Brighton deserve the point and Brighton deserve another season in the Premier League because they've ticked the boxes this year. They've done what they set out to do and that was survive.
3: Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, Brighton with the new manager and stuff, you know, a new sort of way of playing a little bit more, a little bit more uh, attractive, a little bit less direct than they were last season. Um, They were always going to be, you know, Finding the feet under the new manager before they can uh, they can sort of look forward and look up the table a little bit and obviously that starts with um, with making sure you're safe so it's probably a bit of a disappointment that they've took this long to to confirm their safety but they got the point at Newcastle last night and as you said I mean you mentioned the word boring uh, it was on um, it was actually on Pick TV so it was free to free to air so if you have got Pick TV and you uh, you came across it and thought, oh, well, watch that, then I feel sorry for you because it was an absolutely shocking match. <laughs> um, literally, I mean, it's on our Twitter feed. The best thing about the match was Matt Ritchie calling the linesman a wee d***, which was hilarious because, you know, Matt Richie's a Scottish, Scotland international. He's from Portsmouth, Matt Ritchie. I know
1: speaking like a Scotsman?
3: Well, I know he's from Portsmouth, but that... That last night, that little insult was the most Scottish thing he's ever done by by calling the with <laughs> a wee dick, and I was like, "Oh my god, that is hilarious!" As soon as I seen it, I was like, "That's the best thing that's happened in the whole game," bar like by a, by quite a mile. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a dull dull game, um, but it's understandable, you know. I, in the in the situation, there's. You know, every season there's a there's always a drop off in the in the final few games where players start looking towards the holidays and that sort of cliche of always being on the beach and what have you. So, um, if that that becomes even more intensified when the players are playing like the eighth game in two weeks. I mean, Alan St. Maximan had a had a, a quiet game last night. He was just about fit after coming back from a calf injury and he wasn't very uh, he he wasn't his explosive usual self and it's like who can blame him we're safe there's probably going to be a two or three week turnover into the new new season so if he's if he tears his hamstring now that's like you know 8 weeks out like 10 weeks out so why would you even start this and i was thinking that last night and it just it reflected the way we played i think newcastle looked tired brighton looked as though they wanted it a little bit more, however, didn't want to properly go for it in case they got picked off. So they were happy to sit and get their point. Newcastle were happy with the point because they didn't they didn't want to get beat. And it was just a bit of a, a complete dead rubber and a pretty crap game, if I'm honest.
2: I have to say, I saw Steve Bruce after the game moaning about the fixture congestion and the intensity that his team had had in terms of fixtures over the last few weeks. And I kind of thought, shut up. Everyone's had exactly the same situation. Everyone's been in the same boat. You can't use that as an excuse at this stage, and, and I, I don't know why. And I keep on getting this feeling with Steve Bruce. It'd be interesting to know whether you share the same thing, Marley. But it just doesn't seem. It's comments like that that make him appear not equipped for the job in the Premier League.
3: I I get what you mean. Um, however, uh, I don't know. It's, it's the same for everyone isn't it I suppose um, but I just think if managers keep saying it I think it's more a thing if, if every manager keeps saying it then the Premier League may be less likely to do it in the future and and sort of look at how, how much recovery time is needed I mean I know they were forced into this position with the pandemic being as it is but maybe you um, it's maybe it's a diversion tactic a little bit of you know let's make sure the league doesn't do this again I mean what I would say is Bruce hasn't rotated his team very much in terms of um, we Newcastle had the the sort of outlook on on the restarters. We're going to play our best players in every game, you know, and we're going to risk burnout of of Almiron and Saint Maximan in in the games as soon as we come back, and we're going to try and get the points when we can because we we had a couple of difficult games coming up I and mean, we've got Liverpool and Spurs uh we we just had Spurs and then we got Liverpool next so um it was a case of getting the results and getting the you know, guarantee and safety and as quick as possible we did that and it worked um but then that obviously leaves the drop off of you know St Maximan's played at 90 minutes in every game uh, since he's come back pretty much um Bruce hasn't got a massive squad but he does not He does have other options like the, Valentino Lazaro has looked quite good when he's come on and he's never, I don't think he's started a game for us yet and it's one of them where it's like well, you can rest St Maximan like, and just risk a bit of you know, you, you will get stick from the fans because fans will always say oh, we should be playing our best players but at the end of the day, he's gonna we need him fit so playing him in a dead rubber against Brighton last night just let him have a rest and give Lazaro, who's playing for his future because he's on loan. Give him a, just give him a chance. Just let's have a let's have a look at him, but don't play Maximin and then say, oh well, you know, he was tired. And it's like, well, don't play him if he's tired. Just uh, let's have a look at someone else in the squad. So I don't fully agree with with everything he's done, Bruce. Um, and as as regular listeners will know, I don't think he's the man to take us forward in in the future. Um, and if this Flipping takeover ever happens, then I would take a lot of other managers ahead of him. Um, and the fact that you know Graham Sunes and Kieran Dyer were on the uh, on the Sky coverage last night, and they were flipping awful. Like two of our, it was two of our sort of haters now. Uh, Sunes can't stand us anymore because we sacked him because he was crap. Um, and then Kieran Dyer left in a, in acrimonious circumstances as well. Kieran Dyer and he he just proved out of touch he was with the game as well with his with his little comments and stuff. So I mean it was a disappointment all round. Like even you know I said the game was boring. Then it come it cut back to the flipping studio and he had them two gammons in it and I was like oh my god you can't get away from this. So I just ended up going and making tea after like halfway through the second half I'm not bloody listening to these two crack on, so, I mean, the fans got plenty of stick for giving given plenty of stick on Twitter and stuff, so hopefully they'll never get uh, another Newcastle game in the future, but yeah, hopefully not.
2: Well, the takeover is rumbling on now, Um, it's looking like it's going to continue conveniently over the transfer window, which is another excuse for Mike Ashley not to sign any players, which is something I'm sure most Newcastle fans are looking forward to. In the other dugout, obviously Graham Potter, we've talked about before, he's impressed this season, he said, I mean, it was hardly a rallying cry after the game, but he said in response to Brighton securing their future in the Premier League, the financial implications are massive, which I guess is kind of a bit of a comment on the state of the game. It's more about the finances than the football club. But there was an interesting story in the Argus, which I'm assuming is the local paper down in Brighton. um, And it said that Graham Potter, his recruitment in the summer... Is going to be focused more on the mentality of players that he's bringing in than the experience they might have in the Premier League, which is a really interesting idea to move forward. So he's not going to be doing the old tactic of finding a few Premier League warhorses, like getting a James Milner on board or something like that. He's going to be looking for the right kind of players to fit in with his squad, which I guess is kind of... The format that Chris Wilder's had success with at Sheffield United. It'll be an interesting approach, Nile.
1: Yeah, and if you look at Brighton's approach this season, starting from the summer, it's kind of been that way anyway. I mean, if you look at the likes of Neil Mopay, who they brought in from Brentford, who was scoring goals for Brentford in the Championship, has never played in the Premier League before. You know, it's a big gamble to take a player from the Championship and see if they can translate their form in the second tier to, to you know, the English Premier League. And Mopay seems to have done that, and he's done it well, considering the team he's playing in and the sort of style of play. I think he's adapted quite nicely to the Premier League and we've seen his mindset in recent weeks, especially with the sort of tussle he had with Guendouzi at Arsenal. I mean, I don't think he's one of these players that's going to be sort of all, you know, a crumble under the pressure of playing in the Premier League, certainly, and some of the other signings they've made, Adam Webster from Bristol City seems to have been all right this season. Dan Byrne, who's been on loan down at Wigan, albeit he's been at, um, at Brighton for years now, but certainly spent a lot of time on loan in the championship in recent seasons. They've got players that have that have been there and sort of grafted in divisions out on loan. And, you know, I think mentality is a really good point because it seems that if you are going to play to a philosophy, everyone needs to buy into that philosophy you know, it, it might, it's all well and good buying Sergio Aguero because he scores 30 goals a season, but if he doesn't buy into the the work ethic and the, and the philosophy that the manager has got, is it really going to work out? And is that going to have an adverse impact on the squad? You know, and I always use um, Kevin Peterson as an example in cricket. You know, he was sacked from the England cricket team. He was England's best cricketer at the time, but because he was kind of a bit of a bad egg in the dressing room, according to alleged reports, I don't want to lay my hat anywhere on this one, but people said that he was kind of um, a little bit sort of a bad seed in the dressing room and they rooted him out um, for the better of the team. Mm. Whereas, you know, you could argue that the better of the team would be bringing in the best players and, you know, being able to push on, but... I don't think that's a um, I think that's a shrewd approach from Graham Potter to be honest with you. Particularly if you're thinking of a club the size of Brighton, and he mentions that the financial implications are massive. I think he's probably referring to the fact that when you get relegated, you do get parachute payments, but you know you've still got to play pay pay players, big wages, Premier League wages, and there's a salary cap coming in in the Championship and stuff. I don't think it's the worst idea in the world, and. You know, I've been impressed with Graham Potter, as have Brighton. I mean, there was a really sort of heartwarming write-up in the matchday program yesterday at the Amex um, before the game with Newcastle. They were sort of waxing lyrical. Um, uh, Tony Bloom, the chairman at Brighton, was waxing lyrical about Graham Potter, saying how impressed he's been with him. And he handed him a five-year contract earlier this season, I think. After just like a few months in charge of the club. So I think they do really like him down there at Brighton. He's building something. He's been there and grafted in Sweden and other leagues as a manager. So I think he knows what he's doing. And he's not too abrasive as a character. He's got a steely side to him. But he certainly seems to know. look like he knows what he's doing. So all the best to him. And um, be interesting to see who they bring in in the summer.
2: Yeah, I think he's impressed us all, Graham Potter, this season. Let's move on to another manager that's impressed, although last night would have been disappointing for Chris Wilder. Sheffield United won, Everton nil. the epitome of a dead rubber game. Two shots on target during the entire football match for both teams. Please, Niall, tell me something interesting about this match, because I'm really struggling.
1: I think that's the first time Sheffield United have not had a shot on target of Bramall Lane in like the last two seasons or something like that. It's been a while. Um, so that's about the most exciting thing I can tell you about that. Um, and that's me done for that, that game. There's not <laughs> a lot else I can say, really, no. In, in all seriousness, Wilder will be fuming with that, absolutely furious with that performance because they were pretty much out of the Europa League race with a couple of back-to-back defeats and they lost, 3-0 to, they lost 3-0 twice in a row, which was just so rare for Sheffield United. Then they went on this streak where they ended up beating Chelsea and they got a couple of results under their belt. And now they've lost the last two and it's kind of really put a hammer blow to their European ambitions. Uh, I mean, I don't think that they can finish in the Europa League spots unless Chelsea win the FA Cup because there's two teams uh, that are from the Premier League that are in the FA Cup final. If Arsenal win the FA Cup and beat Chelsea, then they get European football. So, you know, still plenty to play for between now and the end of the season. But unfortunately, in terms of it being in their hands, that's it for Sheffield United. For Everton, it's just hot and cold Everton I think I said it on yesterday's podcast they've been up and down and a mm. couple of good results here couple of good results there they ended a five match um, streak without a win last night Everton uh, by, by winning the game by a goal to nil Richarlison's good isn't he that's what I would say about last night's game Richarlison's a good player and you know Everton if they're thinking about bringing in a new striker which a lot of people are talking about Danny Ings to Everton that he would fit there I mean what's wrong with Richarlison he's a very good striker and you know Calvert-Lewin looks like he's he's got what it takes to be a decent striker in future. Not scored much since the restart, but certainly he, he's shown the credentials this season and the promise. So, I mean, that's pretty much it, really. Uh, taken from that game, Sheffield United's European hopes are over and Everton pick up a win, which means that they move further up the table, but Everton can't finish in the top half because they've run out of games. So, yeah, it, like you say, not quite a dead rubber in terms of what Sheffield United were playing for, but certainly now... Um, not really much to to look back on.
2: I was thinking about Everton because ultimately it feels like they've been looking ahead to next season for a few games now and certainly the focus now is going to be on next season and what Carlo Ancelotti can do with that squad. But you look at that Everton team sheet, Marley, and you go down it, how many players there do you think are nailed on to stay at the club? Apart from the two that Niles just mentioned in Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin, are there that many players in that squad that you'd go, you have a future at Everton, given at what they want to achieve?
3: Um, yeah, there's there's a there's a few. Um, I think if you look at you know Lucas Dean at left back, I think he's very very good. Um, Coleman obviously has been one of the best right backs. Uh, in the past, sort of, how long has he been in the Premier League now? About seven or eight years, ten years maybe. Um, he's, he's, don't need anything there. They've also got a backup right back in that, Sidibi, who's, uh, who's really good as well. He'll want to play plenty of games. Andre Gomez, the midfielder, uh, I really like him. He's, he's, in all honesty, he's probably better than Everton in terms of, you know, he's come from Barcelona, for example. He, he, he's going to be uh, wanting to, uh, be part of a team that's sort of challenging for something. If that's uh, whether that's uh, the top six or whatever, we'll have to wait and see. But I think they've got the they've got the start of a good team. They've got a few good players. I think I like Holgate as well at the back. Uh, I think he's a good player. But I mean, Everton for years and years since they sold Lukaku, they just need a striker. Then Keane hasn't worked. Uh, Chenk Tosun hasn't worked. Richarlison for me isn't isn't a striker. I think he's better as a left midfielder, and he he scores a lot of goals coming in off that wing. Um. So it's it's about it's about that for for me. I think you know, they have got a lot of deadwood. I think you know Theo Walcott, for example, Alex Warby, Schneiderlin. They've have they still got in I think he's is he still is there? He, is he? Is he I think he's gone now. I think I think his contract expired, didn't it? And did, did they just
1: let him go? Oh, he's gone. He's gone to he's gone to Nice. He's gone to play for Patrick Vieira in France. He's gone to play for Nice. He's been signed for I think it was five, six, seven million. So it wasn't too much, but they've. They've let him go. He's been sold. Yeah,
2: hasn't made a single appearance for Nice this season. I've just googled it. That's because he's
1: not. That's because he's only been there about a month. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He'll be at Nice from next season
3: then, basically, Jim. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Everton need to start, uh, you know, finding out who's who's staying and who's going because they need to. They need work. I think Sigurdsson as well has kind of slipped away. I mean, he used to be a top top player, but. He he seemed to have gone back a bit. I don't think the system suits suits him quite well at uh, Everton in terms of. I think they've been playing sort of a four four two formation. I don't think he really fits into that. Um. So it depends what Ancelotti wants to do with with this with the uh, the tactics and and that kind of thing. But we'll see. I think we'll see a fair bit from Everton in the transfer window this year because, to be honest, they they need to they need plenty of work because they need to. To, well, number one, get into that top half and they need to match their ambitions of moving into this new stadium and getting this world-class manager. You can't then give a world-class manager the likes of Iwobi and Pickford and Michael Keane to, to work with and you can't expect him to to make these players into top six players and, and players that can challenge for, for uh, European places because they're, they're simply not good enough. So you need to then go and back him again in the transfer market and see what he can do there and make him really put a stamp on his team because... Otherwise, you're just gonna you're kind of strangling him, and that's not what you bring in a world class manager to do.
2: Finally, on this game, I really liked Chris Wilder's comments after the game, where he praised his players for overachieving and recognised that no one really expected Sheffield United to do what they've done this season. But also said that his team needs to improve in the summer, which I think is a huge statement from the manager that. Eighth isn't good enough. For his aspirations and for the club's aspirations, he wants to be higher. He wants to be in those European slots. And I think Sheffield United fans will be hugely optimistic and excited by those comments. Uh, Final game from last night was Wolves 2, Crystal Palace 0. Wolves continue to impress. Palace continue to be a little bit rubbish, essentially. So let's focus on the positives first. And that's Wolverhampton Wanderers, who have now got the highest ever points tally they've got in a Premier League season. Are they threatening for top four next season, Niall?
1: Well, I said earlier on in the podcast that, you know, you can kind of make a case for for Wolves for next season, getting into the top four based on the form they've shown since the restart. If they make some additions, if they keep their manager, who I know is highly rated, then then why not? I mean, we've seen Leicester do it this year. So there's no reason why Wolves can't kind of take a similar vein and end up in the top four. But I mean, if you're talking about realistically, is it going to happen? Probably not. But could they give it a good go? Yeah, of course they could. But this is the thing with the Premier League. One season you're up there and another season you're fighting off relegation. It's it's so hard to predict. I mean, if you look at the Premier League predictions from some of the sports social pundits at the start of the season, I think a lot of people had... Um, For instance, Everton to be higher up the league, Sheffield United to be further down the league, and that's just simply not been the case. And I doubt many people predicted Leicester to have been as high as they have been for the whole of the season. So you just don't know. They can probably give it a good old fist. I mean, if they can keep their players fit... And depending, uh, depending on how they get on in, in um, the Europa League this season, they might even be playing Champions League football next season anyway. So we'll have to wait and see on that one. But they do have quality and they do have plenty of players who can change a game and you know, even with the additions they've brought in, I mean, we saw Daniel Podent scoring last night, who was kind of a an acquisition they've been chasing for a while. I think he came in from Olympiakos, and so, you know, he's shown that he's able to kind of mix it. And I think that they're all good players that kind of bounce off each other at Wolves. I mean, Jimenez is a, is a excellent striker. Um, Jota, Pedro Neto. I mean, they've got they've got talent in that squad. I mean, they're all reliable. There's no one you think at Wolves when they come into the squad they think, oh, you know, it's a bit dodgy at the back or or whatever, which I think is where they actually have an advantage over Leicester, because you know you think of Shaglassu Inshu being out for Leicester with a with a red card suspension. You know they've been relying on Johnny Evans and Bennett, and I think Marley said something quite funny the other day saying that Bennett looks like he was a competition winner. You can't really level the same thing at Wolves players because <laughs> didn't uh, did you know, Ryan
3: Bennett come from Wolves? He did. Is yeah, he online, online or something? Wolves. I think so. Jesus yeah, is, yeah.
1: Christ so so i mean that just goes to show that they've got quality in every department and, and no one comes in um into that wolves 11 and makes you think oh well okay there's a bit of a weak link there which is a really really promising sign and it you know it shows that the fruits of of nuno's labor is starting to come good but obviously the season's not over mm. the season is is not over uh, they have still got a europa league competition to finish off and if they win that they can get into the champions league so Yeah, Wolves could finish in the top four next season. I mean, I personally wouldn't back them, but I'm not going to be as shocked um, next season if I see the likes of Wolves in the top four for a a sustained period of time, considering what we've seen at the back end of this campaign.
2: Go on, lads, give it a good old fist. Good phrasing, Niall. Uh, Daniel Podence obviously did score that goal. (laughs) It was quite impressive for Such a small man to score an emphatic header. It couldn't have been any easier. Middle of the goal, two yards out, was pretty much on his head. And because he's not that tall, it would have been as difficult to hit it into the ground as it would have over the bar. But fair play to him. Another decent acquisition in the transfer market for Wolves, it would appear. And the kind of player that maybe Crystal Palace need at the moment. Because they've now scored in one goal. Sorry, they've now scored in one game out of their last seven, and that was the 2-3 loss to Chelsea. All the others have been complete blanks. Who do you blame for that? Because it can't all be on the players, surely. They have got goal scorers. They've got Benteke and Ayu and Jeffrey Schlup likes a goal, and they've got Zahar, obviously. So it can't all be on them that they're firing blanks, Marley. Well, you've just,
3: you just mentioned those names, and none of them scream goal scorer to me. I mean, Benteke he's got an awful record over the past two or three years i mean ayu's been quite good this season but i would say andre um, jordan ayu's had a very good season by his standards in terms of would you expect him to get you know eight or nine or 10 premier league goals whatever he's got you wouldn't expect him to do that every season so he's kind of at the top end of his of his sort of arc you know he he's had a very good season but still it's not enough to to power a team through i mean Palace have been really, really bad since the restart, and all of a sudden it looks like you know they've got an old team. Uh, they've got, I think they've got the oldest average age in the Premier League um, in in starting eleven. And you look at what they've got, and mm. I was thinking last night when when I seen this result come in, I think thinking about Palace, and if they, I know they're not near relegation really, but if they got relegated, who would pick up their their players? What players would get picked up other than Zaha? And I'm not entirely sure. I think Gaeta might the goalkeeper, obviously, but Van Aanholt might. But other than them three, they've just got it's got it's got a lot of average players. Macarthur, James Macarthur, James McCarthy, they've got as well. Um <laughs> is McArthur. quite good, yeah. Um, you know, Scott Dan Sacco Sacco can't defend anymore, and he gets he gets injured all the time, as he did last night. I mean. It just sums up where Crystal Palace are that they let a five foot two guy score a header from two yards out, and it's like that just mm. that that's really puts uh, puts into perspective how how poorly you're playing that he he, he can ghost in unmarked and just <laughs> head in head in a simple goal like he did last night, and it was it just sums up where where Crystal Palace are, and I think a lot of the fans want Roy Hodgson gone. Um, I. Would agree with that. If you're going to go forward, I don't think Roy Hodgson's the man to take you, you know, forward towards a, a top half finish because he's 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 ancient and he like let's be honest, he's he's set in his ways. He's not going to have the most uh, attacking sort of philosophy. He's not going to all of a sudden, you know, buy buy players that are going to come and go and really go for teams. So. I think if you want to change his Crystal Palace, you, you have to change the manager and, and give him some money to spend on getting a younger, more exciting squad, um, or at least a younger, more exciting starting eleven. And you got to see where you go. But from a Crystal Palace perspective, they tried that with Frank de Boer a few years ago and they binned him off after five games. So they're probably reluctant to, to take that chance again, having been burnt by it before. So maybe that's why... Palace will sort of stick and I still expect Hodgson to be there next year. I still expect probably Zaha to be there because nobody wants to buy him um, for the ridiculous price they put on his head. And there you go. I mean, they need they need more than what they've got and it's going to be a, a hell of a job for, for them to do that because I just don't think they've got everything in place to, to sort of even start thinking about, right, let's go to the top half because they just haven't got the squad for it.
2: Marley continuing his agenda against the ageist his ageist agenda against Roy Hodgson. Uh, We're going to take a little break now. We're going to come back. There's loads of interesting transfer gossip doing the rounds. As soon as the transfer window was confirmed it was opening and when it was shutting and all that kind of thing, the rumours started.
0: So we're going to do that next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily spin like royalty here at kingcasino.com over 18s only terms and conditions apply please play responsibly be football social daily subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode
2: welcome back to football social daily we're going to use the final section of the podcast to talk about transfers because no sooner had the Transfer window dates being been announced that it really ramped up in terms of the back page rumours on papers right across Europe and some of the tastiest morsels we're going to chew over now, including Italian press who are reporting that Pep Guardiola is having a look at Alexi Sanchez. After disappointing spells in Italy and obviously his disappointing spell at Manchester United, he could be off to the Etihad, presumably not demanding quite the same wages he did when City looked at him originally. Nile is... Guardiola the kind of manager that could put Sanchez back on the right track?
1: This seems a really weird potential signing for Manchester City because normally they sign players um, that have done really well in, in the European leagues that are kind of up and coming. Not someone who's sort of already had the pinnacle of their career. Sort of Sanchez, I think he's 30, if not approaching 30 now. And, um, you know, he's kind of had the peak of his career, but it was under Pep at Barcelona few years ago. So, you know, if there is anyone that could possibly turn his career back on track, it would be Pep Guardiola because, you know, the most success that Sanchez has enjoyed in his career was at Barcelona. He went to Arsenal, won a couple of FA Cups, but that's not the same as winning titles, is it, and playing a brand of football that you kinda of know and love and that you were brought up on, um in Catalonia or under Pep so so yeah i think um i think it could be a, an interesting one i think you're right jim the wages was what priced manchester city out of an initial move a couple of seasons ago when he opted to join manchester united and pep guardiola actually mentioned that in a recent press conference saying people might think we've got all this money but we still can't compete with the likes of manchester united when it comes to wages and uh, and transfer fees and stuff like that um so i think this time around it'd be really interesting to see because Although Alexis Sanchez, I think, is pretty much obliged to go to Inter Milan, I wonder how that negotiation will work with Manchester United and what Manchester United will try and do in terms of how they negotiate the fee with Inter and and, and all the rest of it. I'm not sure how that contract is actually working. I know United are still playing a ch- paying a chunk of Sanchez's wages. Um, and I think Sanchez got injured just after Christmas and we've not really seen much of him. So... Um, I'm not sure about this one. I don't know where it's come from. I don't know whether it's just sort of old flames kind of coming back to bubble to the surface. But yeah, I mean, if Pep Guardiola, if there is going to be one manager who's going to turn Alexis Sanchez's career around, it is going to be Pep Guardiola. Um, Style of play would suit Sanchez. Uh, Just makes you wonder, is this really a typical Manchester City signing or, you know, is, is this just a little bit of paper speculation?
2: It does feel like it might just be a rumor, potentially started by an agent who's looking to get Sanchez a move. After all, if Manchester City are interested in a player, surely other clubs should be having a look as well. And there may be that old relationship thing, Marley, between Sanchez and Guardiola from their time at Barcelona. But it does feel a little bit speculative. This one, doesn't
3: it? Yeah, I think um, papers are getting papers have realized that they got a lot of a lot of column entries out of the rumours of, of Sanchez to City the last time, you know, the first time it sort of nearly happened and they've sort of thought, well, maybe we can, we can nick a few uh, back pages for this, uh, this time round. Maybe it's got a, th- a bit more legs and a bit more clicks to run kind of thing. Cause I can't see it happening. I mean, I think he's like 31, 32 mm-hmm. now Sanchez. It literally makes no sense for me. Um, he's done, he's done pretty well in, in Italy to be fair, but that just proves that he's more suited to Italian football than than English football over the last few months and you know six months or a year or whatever, um, whatever time he's been there. By the time the season ends, so I think just stay just stay in to just do do your thing there. You've you know you've to Italy pretty well, playing quite good. Um, you're finally getting back to sort of a similar level or close to the level you were at when you were in your prime at Arsenal. So. Why? Why risk it? and Why have another another dip in uh, in your career when you could effectively challenge for a title with, with Inter because they're a lot closer to the uh, to Juventus than anyone has been in the last few years. So coming back and and playing for Man City and making it all go you know downhill again, it would be a bad career move. And would you then get that that lifeline if if it did go wrong at the age of sort of 33, 34, what whatever? So. Just makes no sense to me this whole this whole situation. I don't think who wins from the whole situation. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was just paper talk and agent talk and all the rest of it. So I can't see Sanchez lining up in a Man City shirt so sure, anytime soon.
2: Great big done deal, Claxon for Jude Bellingham. He has gone to Borussia Dortmund, 25 million pounds the fee and a tone deaf. New signing announcements in the literal term rather than the uh, social media term with uh, members of the Dortmund squad singing Hey Jude, the Beatles song on a video that unveiled his signing. But poor taste aside in terms of the unveiling video, decent signing for Dortmund, a player that was linked with a load of the big clubs in England. Why are all these young players going off to Germany? Now, we saw it with Jadon Sancho. There's rumours about a fellow called Baker Boyty, who's a 19-year-old West Ham youth player that you won't have heard of unless you happen to follow West Ham off to,
1: going off to Bayern Munich. So a lot of
2: players seem to be going out there. I guess, I guess it's in search for a bit of game time, is it, Niall?
1: Yeah, that's it. The reason you go to Germany is because you get a chance. If you look at, you know, we spoke about Crystal Palace a minute ago. They've got an ancient squad, as Marley picked apart, how many young players have they got in their academy that could really do, do with a the run-out? They're not going down Crystal Palace. They're not going to get into Europe. They've lost seven games in, on the spin. Why isn't Roy Hodgson dipping into that academy, which has produced the likes of Victor Moses, Aaron Wan-Bissaka, Wilfried Zaha? And that's just three I'm thinking off the top of my head. They've got a decent academy at Crystal Palace. It's not even Category 1. They've only just been um, awarded Category 1 status, which is the highest status you can get in a, in a Premier League academy. And yet they're producing these players which have gone on to do great things. I mean, Victor Moses has won the Premier League with Chelsea a couple of times. You know, mm. so Aaron Mbisaka is now playing for Manchester United. So, I mean, why aren't, why aren't Crystal Palace giving these young players chances? And that's exactly why the likes of Adam Ola-Lukman, who moved from Everton, a young player brought up in this country, moved over to uh, Germany, moved over to the Bundesliga. You've seen it with the likes of... Um, of Jadon Sancho, as we've mentioned. And now Jude Bellingham's following in the footsteps. And, you know, there's a couple of others. Reece Nelson as well, I think, was in, uh, who's at Arsenal, was in the uh, Bundesliga last season or the season before. You've got Leon Bailey, who's a young Jamaican lad, who's uh, at Bayer Leverkusen. These boys are getting chances in, in a top European league against quality players at a much earlier opportunity. They're getting a much earlier stab at top-flight senior football than they would do if it was a Premier League squad. And I, I don't think that's a secret anymore. And people are saying, well, oh, why are they leaving mm-hmm. the Premier League? Why would you leave a club like Chelsea? Because, you know, before Frank Lampard came in and there was a transfer ban, you really think that Reese James and Fikayo Tomori and Mason Mount, I mean, they would have believed in themselves, but the chances of them getting an opportunity were greatly increased by the transfer ban at Chelsea. And the amount of young talent that they've got. I mean, Callum Hudson-Odoi for me was the one coming through and I thought he is going to be quality. And he's disappointed me. But it's all right because Chelsea have such a wealth of talent. I think that's the, the pure and simple reason. And Jude Bellingham will find that he will get opportunities at Dortmund. I think we'll come on to Sancho in a sec. But that certainly labours the question for me whether Sancho is on his way out of Dortmund. Now they've brought Bellingham in. Were they going to make a move for Bellingham anyway? We just don't know. But you, just, you do get a chance. It's plain and simple, black and white there for everyone to see. If you move to Germany, there is a career path there for you at the top level of European football, and you'd be foolish not to take it. It'll be a drop in wages. It isn't quite the same, but you're playing in an unbelievable competitive league. It's one of the best leagues in Europe, and you're playing against some quality players uh, week in, week out. You're playing with some good players. It's not the Premier League, no. It's not as good as the Premier League. The German League will never be as good as the Premier League, but You get a chance, and that's what you need in the modern game because it's so, so ruthless.
2: Well, we are going to come on to Jadon Sancho, and the conventional wisdom is that Bellingham signing at Dortmund means he is on the way out. Plenty of people after his signature leading that race. Marley is Manchester United. £80 million they're putting on the table in a take-it-or-leave-it offer, according to the papers this morning. Will Dortmund take it? And you've been quite critical as well of... Jaden Sancho picking Manchester United. You've said that it's not the right move for him. Are you standing by that opinion?
3: Uh, yeah, to be honest. Um, I don't think... I don't know. I just, I just think Sancho can go anywhere he wants. I don't think Dortmund to Man United is necessarily a forward move. I think it's sort of a, a level move, like it's a sideways move kind of thing. Um, at the minute, you know, Man United are finding their their feet with you know Greenwood coming through and um, finding his his way into that front three with Martial and and Rashford. I just don't know where. I, what I what I don't like about this whole situation is that Man United fans seem to have a sort of assumption that he'll that he'll come, and it's like really like will he will he come? Because I don't know if he's. If he's that bothered by Man United, he's, he seems to, you know, f- sort of flirt with them on social media a little bit, which maybe would suggest he would, but I, I'm not sure about it. I'm not sure it's the right, right move for him. If I'm honest, I think he should stay at uh, at Dortmund, carry on for another year, maybe maybe another two years, and then see what what the lay of the land is is then because um, he's doing fine. He's absolutely tearing it up in in the Bundesliga. They're still. Sort of challenging Bayern. I mean, I know they haven't won won the title for I think eight eight in a row now for Bayern, but they're still closer than Man United are to a title challenge. So for me, I just don't know why he would why he would leave that lat right now. I think he's got plenty of time to make a big move. He's probably got another two or three transfers in in his entire career. If you look at where he goes, if he goes now for a, for eighty million, I still think it's quite cheap. So in a few years, he probably be worth. 140, 150 million if he lives up to his potential the way the transfer market's going. So mm-hmm. you know do do you need to move now? I don't think he does. Um I think just let the situation play out. Let maximize your value to your club. Um and also eighty million isn't really enough for Sancho. If you look at the transfer fees that are going round and the levels Sancho's hitting at the minute, I mean he's literally one of the most creative. And uh, prolific players in Europe, so eighty million does seem a little bit on this on the slow side for a, a on the small side for a twenty twenty one year old kid. So, you know, I think Man United are trying to steal him on the cheap um, and use the uh, the coronavirus sort of weird situation that we're in to try and uh, snag themselves a bit of a bargain. But I think Dortmund should should stick firm and say no, like. Let's see what it what the situation's like next year, and then we can talk. But for now, he's he, he should stay with uh, with Dortmund for me.
2: Well, let's compare that fee eighty million pound for Sancho to a transfer that I think is going to excite you a little bit, Marley. One hundred twenty million euros, one hundred and ten million quid, in other words, for Jan Oblak, the Atletico Madrid goalkeeper. That's his release clause fee, which apparently Chelsea are prepared to pay to bring him to the Premier League. I know you think he is the greatest goalkeeper in the world right now and it would make a lot of sense Chelsea it's a bit of Kepa's not really impressed. It's a bit of a weak spot for them. So if you're going to bring in a new goalkeeper, why not go for the best of the world?
3: Yeah, exactly. If you if you're going if you're going to do it, do it properly. Um but <laughs> they they're spending a lot of money Chelsea aren't they, let's be honest. They're, I can't see them chucking this money at black on top of what they've already threw at I think Kai Havertz is is pretty close to a move if, if reports are be are to be believed. Um so that's another eighty million quid and they've already signed Ziek and mm. and Werner as well. So I can't see all black coming this year. Um but if they do, I mean they've got the added thing of they know the price for because the uh, the release clause is there, so I think it would depend on what they can recoup for Keppa. Um I think I don't know what you'd get for him. I mean, seventy million they signed him for something like that. Um, you'd be lucky to get forty or fifty. I mean, could you could you twist Atletico's arm and and get him into a swap deal with them for for because it, it would drive his price down by forty million or maybe a little bit more. So then again, Atletico aren't stupid. They know that that they're getting the worst end of that deal um, plus a bit of money to to spend in their squad, but. It just depends on on everything, but the the one advantage you do have is is price can't change. You know that a maximum you do you would have to pay is 120 million euros or whatever it is. So is is he worth that? But for me, I think the the proof is in in Edison and Allison and what they've done to take their their teams to a, a new level. I think a new goalkeeper can can really set you apart, and I think where. Where Chelsea have struggled this season is there's been a lot of rotation at the back. I mean, Caballero and and Kepper have have rotated a little bit. They've had a few centre back pairings tried and tested and not quite worked out. So I think with a, a proper solid goalkeeper and a, a solid back, you know, centre back pairing, I think Chelsea could go on and and challenge for the title with the with the new uh, the new signings they've got coming in. If they all hit the ground running, I don't I don't think Chelsea are that far away from. From uh, making a, a a proper go at the title for me.
1: I'm sorry, I don't care how good you think Odd Black is. A hundred, a hundred and ten million pounds is f- ridiculous money for a goalkeeper. I'm sorry, I know goalkeepers are a lot more, you know, relied upon nowadays than they used to be. But one hundred plus million for a goalkeeper. I mean, really? I mean, seventy one million for Keppel was eye watering enough. Sixty six for Allison. I'm thinking, really? I mean, Buffon cost Juventus 33 million pounds back in 2001 and for absolutely years i think like nearly 15 20 years he was the most expensive goalkeeper of all time look how good gianluigi buffon has been i don't think jan oblak is really in the frame for being one of the best goalkeepers ever at the moment yeah no doubt he's one of the best in the world but really 110 million for oblak i mean that i mean that's oblak's quality i mean He'd be in with a shout of getting in a world eleven if there was one, but that money is just a disgrace for me. I mean, you can't you can't warrant paying that on a goalkeeper. Where's the justification? Or we needed one. I mean, is he is he really fifty million better than Kepa? Probably, but not in the context of having to pay a hundred and ten for him. I mean, that's a, that's a savage amount of money. I mean, I just don't understand it. Goalkeepers back in the day, if a goalkeeper went for twenty million, that is a, that's expensive. That's really, really expensive. And I know I've spoken on the podcast before about how, you know, the bang average player nowadays costs 20 million and your good player costs 50 and your really good player costs 80. With goalkeepers, I don't think you can really apply that because that's just a savage amount of money. I just can't get over that. 110 million. There's no, I just can't see Chelsea stumping up that to pay for a goalkeeper. They've been stung once by Kepa. Surely they're not going to, surely they're not going to dip into their pockets and pay that much. I mean... David De Gea cost United 20 or 20 million, something like that, about 10 years ago. And although he's had a bit of a downturn in form in the last couple of seasons, on the whole, he's been he's been really worth the 20 million. You know, I think 2 million a season. He's one player of the season, four or five years um, in that time that he's been at the club. Um, and now people are starting to say that he's, he's not up to it. I mean, 110? Not for me.
2: You could get 12 Lucas Fabianskis for that. And no one's getting past 12 Lucas Fabianskis if you stack them all up and go.
1: They are if you stick D up and Balbuena in front of them. <laughs> I,
3: know
1: it's a, I know it's a release clause, but I mean, seriously, if Jaden Sancho is roughly going for an 80 million quid and Oblak's 110, there's something wrong with the game. There really is.
2: I can see a little scenario potentially where Chelsea do sign Oblak and Atletico Madrid come in for David De Gea. Talks about him potentially needing a move, and Henderson takes that number one spot at Manchester United. Potentially a little chain of events that could unfold over the next few weeks there. That is it for Football Social Daily, a bumper episode today. Thank you very much for listening. If you've got this far, make sure you click subscribe so you never miss an episode, and we will see you next time.
0: Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode